News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I know it feels like when we talk about artificial intelligence and robots, it's all very, you know, futuristic. But imagining thing, these things and using even terms like robot really go way back in history, actually, like ancient mythological origins. This was all new to me, so I thought, let's learn more about it. Avery Hurd is with us now, a freelance science and medical journalist who's written about this. Uh, Avery, thanks so much for being here. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I was surprised to learn about this, but like, when were the first mentions of things like robots in history? Well, actually, the term robot was created fairly recently back in the, oh, gosh, maybe 40s in a a short story by Czech playwright. I'm not sure of that date. It may have been earlier than that. But it was a a short story called Rossum's Universal Robots in English. Um, So that was the first time we had the word robot. But we've had what were robots uh, in stories all the way back to mythology, uh, Greek mythology, way back. So it's not a new idea. Interestingly, humans have kind of had this urge, it seems like, to create other humans forever. I don't know what that is, but we're kind of driven to, to, make, to make creatures like ourselves. So what was the reference then in ancient mythology uh, that we know might have been referencing something like a robot? Well, um, Hephaestus, he was the Greek god of craftsmen, and he was a metal worker, and he made a lot of uh, robot-like kind of characters out of metal. He, uh, A couple of the most famous, he made uh, Talos, was a giant mechanical man whose job was to patrol the shores of Crete and, and protect the island from invasion. So he was definitely what we would call a robot today. Um, perhaps the most famous creation of Hephaestus, though, is Pandora. She wasn't metal, I don't think. She was made from clay, I'm pretty sure. This was another uh, uh, thing that Hephaestus did a lot of. But, you know, you remember the, uh, the Pandora story. There are a lot of versions uh, of this story, but there, as there always are with these myths. But basically, Zeus was seriously irked that Prometheus had given humans fire. So he asked Hephaestus to create uh, a beautiful woman, and then Zeus gave her a jar, uh, sometimes it's a box, filled with all the woes that beset humans, like you know, disease, hunger, plagues, um, I don't know, acne, traffic jams, <laughs> presumably COVID-19 was in there somewhere. And Zeus told, uh, he instructed, we might even call it program Pandora, to open the box and let all this horror loose on humans to punish them for accepting fire from Prometheus. So, And, and Prometheus, meanwhile, has been chained to a rock where an eagle's going to eat his liver out every day and then it grows back and then eats it out again. So I guess you could say humans kind of got the better of this deal. <laughs> Such pleasant stories, right? These ancient, these ancient stories. <laughs> right, right. But, so, but the, the idea is that even this far back, people were thinking about the, the you know, the, these were the gods making these, these robots or these mechanical people, but it was humans making up the stories. So even this far back, people were concerned about the dangers of uh, gifts from the gods or tech getting out of hand, uh, whether these are god gods or tech gods. It's sort of the same idea that we we need to be nervous about this. This is something people are kind of compelled to do, but also know there's some risk. What's so so interesting about that, though, is that from all those stories that you describe, it sounds like we've always been warned about some of the dangers of these things, and yet we always seem to go ahead and do them anyway. (laughs) 
exactly. I mean, it's it's really odd. It's like we're compelled to do it. And another story that's kind of, I think, very instructive, it's not from mythology, it's from folklore, but it's the, um, I'm sure you've heard of the, uh, the Jewish golem. That's also right. a clay man. And, and one of the things that's cool about the golem is the, the thing that brings this clay man to life is words on paper. You would, you would write down uh, uh, words. Sometimes it might be the name of God or some sort of sacred message and put it in the golem's mouth, and that's what brought the golem to life. And then and here's the interesting thing. The golem was meant to protect Jewish people, and it did a really good job of that, but it tended to take things very literally because of language and sometimes got out of hand and killed innocent people. So to me, that's such a, a connection. Um, the, the idea, Well, first with the idea that language is what makes us human, which a lot of people tend to think that language is what separates us from other animals. But really, in, intriguingly, it's um, these, these large language models now that we so many people think are sentient or about to become sentient, these AIs. Um, it's like we have this idea that language can bring something to life. And then once it's brought to life, once you have created life, it's out of your control. Right. But we always tend to think that we will be able to control it, right? We have all these warnings, all these stories of, of things that could potentially go wrong. But when the time comes, we think, no, 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 we'll do it better. We can handle it, right? And yet we've been, we've been warning ourselves about this for thousands of years. Thousands of years. That's the thing that probably amazes people about this, right? We think we're thinking about the future, but really we are kind of reliving stories from the past, aren't we? Right, right. You know, it's funny. It's almost like, you know, to use that term programming again, it's almost like it's programmed into us to keep doing this. We can't stop ourselves. And not necessarily that we should. I'm not, I'm not trying to put up a scare about AI here. I just think it's really interesting that we've been doing this and warning ourselves about this for so long. It really is. Are there lessons, do you think, that we can take from those stories? You know, I, I don't know that it's a, a lesson. I'm not sure. I think there's definitely something to be, there's a foreshadowing to what's going on today. I, I think probably the lesson is that we need to think very carefully about how we speak to these these creations we make, how we, in, in a sense, program them, because once we've done that, whether they're out of control in the sense that an AI becomes sentient, which I don't think is going to happen, certainly not anytime soon, but that once it's released to, into the public, into our society, it has some power. So I think we need, the lesson is that we need to be very aware of what we're creating, what we're telling it to do, um, and know that it has some kind of power to change things. And we, that might be for the better, and it might not be. Yeah, I'm not sure that we think about all that before we actually do it. Um, Avery, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It was fun talking with you. Yeah, hey, you too. That's Avery Hurt, freelance science and medical journalist who's written about the issue of the really ancient mythological origins of our, our kind of flirtation with technology and the things that we are obsessed with it goes all the way back to ancient Greek times, ancient stories too, which is fascinating. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's see. I could just listen to the Eagles all day. I think I think it's right up there as one of, if not my most favorite band. So glad I got to see them in concert. But as always, there's a story behind that too. Our Scott Chance is with us. I know we're talking about this because Randy Meisner has passed, 77 yeah. years old, one of the founding members of the Eagles. 
Remember when the Eagles got back together in 1994? I sure do. My Hell freeze is over. My parents were so excited. It was now you're making me feel old, Scott, because well, I was really no, excited. I mean, they, they they're obviously older than you, but they, <laughs> my, the reason that I have my appreciation for music that I do, I credit my mom. She's a huge music fan and taught me so much about music, especially classic rock. And it was a big deal for her when the Eagles yes. got back together. Absolutely, I was so excited. I loved the Eagles because that that's, that album with Desperado on it was. Great. Growing up, like my favorite album. Yeah. And so when they got back together for the Hell Freezes Over tour, I was going. I was going to go. Couldn't get tickets. And that was back in the day when you had to line up to right. get tickets or try to get them on the phone. And I just couldn't do it. And and it was so expensive. And I was so young at that point. I didn't think I had a full-time job. I think I was working part-time at the TV station. And, sure. And so I didn't go. And that was always a regret to me that I didn't see them when the Hell Freezes Over tour. And then Glenn Fry passed away. Yeah. And then I thought, well, now that was it. That's the one big regret. So when I had the chance to go see them four years ago, they had Deacon Fry playing with them. Yes. Glenn Fry's son seized it, went, loved it. Amazing concert. One of the, the highlight of my life. But in the back of my mind, I thought I always should have gone to that you know, done it right. way back with when. the original lineup. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And this is a thing that I think a lot of people are sort of grappling with now is a lot of our heroes, musical heroes are, are at that stage of Might life. not be around much longer. You betcha. You know what? My mom had this moment too, where she loved the musical, The King and I. Okay. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And they used to tour quite a bit. And it used to tour with Yul Brenner, who okay. was the original star of the movie. And she didn't go the last time she had the opportunity to see Yul Brenner in The King and I, and then he passed away. Oh. And then Rudolf Nureyev was also for a long time touring, and then he passed away. And then she would always complain that she should have gone, should have gone with Yul Brenner when, and she missed that chance to see it. Yeah, you don't want to have those type of regrets, you know? And I've seen a lot of the shows that I want to see. The Eagles actually is one of my Go. regrets. I know, I really, I know. And But like the other one that's hanging over me that I've had many opportunities to go and I haven't just because it's been a little bit too expensive or a lot too expensive or the timing hasn't been right is Bruce Springsteen. And you know, he's in good shape, but he, he, I, I haven't seen him. He's the big artist that I love. I've seen, like I, I saw Tom Petty. I saw Ro Jimmy Lucky. Page and Robert Plant. Lucky. That was the first concert I went to was Jimmy Page and Robert Plant with my classic rock influenced parents. It was so great. Amazing. Yeah. I've seen Neil Young. Um, but no Bruce Springsteen. No. Let me so tell he's you. on my list. Let me tell you something. We work with somebody here who is a Bruce Springsteen Fanatic. Leo, Leo. Leo yeah, yes. I've, we've talked about it. He and can't he, believe that I haven't seen him. He can't because, I mean, how many times has he seen Springsteen? Yeah. Almost tw like 20 times yes. probably, maybe more. He's one of those people who will travel to the Bruce, and he has a system for getting tickets. Like uh -huh. he, He's got a whole series of friends who they work on getting tickets. So if you, he's the guy if you want to go see Springsteen. Do you do you have an artist that you is still on your list that you Bruno haven't Mars. seen? Yeah. Bruno Mars, I, I would love to see Bruno Mars, and there's an opportunity coming up at the end of August where I could go see him, but then I went, and the tickets are like, it's too much, yeah. and I can't do it. It's it's about $500 Canadian to go, and, and I just can't do it. You know... I can't pull but that trigger, Scott. You don't want to regret it, Simmy. I'm going to. You don't to. want to regret it. <laughs> I mean, I'm 500 is a lot of money. But there's, a, I mean, there's a good chance that he'll put out a couple more albums and tour and be here in Vancouver at sure. some point. There's a chance of that. A chance. But he hasn't been here for quite a few years. Yeah. This is a small venue. And I could go and see this. It's possible. I will be there at that time. 
and I can't, I just can't do it. It's you too much money. You only love No, I don't. I don't have that kind of bucks. I don't have Scott Chance bucks. I can't do it. <laughs> so I'm sure there's people out there who've regretted not seeing a band or an artist when they had the chance and then the chance was gone and they'll never be able to do it again. So what is it? Scott and I both have one. We told you what ours is. What is yours? Send me at cknw.com or you know what? Better yet, call us and tell us a story. 604-331-2899. There's always a bigger story involved in it. Don't you think? Absolutely. So for your parents, did they ever have a regret that there was something that they wanted to see? Uh, they, well, uh, part of the reason that I've seen all the music that I have, again, is is because of them. You know, my mom and I, we went and watched uh, Willie Nelson in the pouring oh. rain because she, it was so important to her to see Willie Nelson. We've seen John Mellencamp, same thing, standing in the pouring rain. Uh, I took her to Elton John because Elton John, it was like, she was like, that's the that was the concert for her. And so I made, I made sure that I got tickets for her because uh, she took me to the wow. Rolling Stones last time they were in Vancouver. Okay, you, yeah, yeah. I don't even know how you have any regrets given all the shows <laughs> that you have seen, but I feel like there's always one out there, Scott, for people. Bruce Springsteen. There it is. Bruce Springsteen. That's the one for Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to find out what it is. I have some. I have a feeling it has something to do with Vaughn's one big regret. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. It takes something to knock the village people off my playlist. It really does. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking this morning about regrets, concerts that we should have gone to and then something happened, maybe somebody died, the band broke up, and we never got to see them. What's yours? It's the Grateful Dead. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to sound ungrateful <laughs> to the listener, because I was a music critic, and uh, you know, I've seen some fantastic shows over the years. Dylan with the band and Elton John, fifty years ago, and Springsteen when he was still doing small halls. But uh, the Grateful Dead. So the Dead did not come to British Columbia all that often, although they did play in Vancouver in 1973 or four. But they did a regular stand in Tacoma and in Eugene, Oregon, that were legendary even when I was uh, in the music uh, industry writing about music. So there were opportunities, but uh, I never saw them. Um, I really, really started listening to the dead a lot. I'm a serious deadhead now. After Jerry Garcia died and... You know, one thing you learn about the dead listening to them live is that they're, they were a very different band live than they were on record. Their, their records never really captured it. But uh, happily, the dead saved everything. There are something like 3,000 Grateful Dead shows that are saved on tape and available either online or on disc, as I have them, uh, so you can enjoy them, and I do but it's a great regret that, you know, when I when I had the chance, I never made the journey, the pilgrimage to, you know, they'd do five shows in Eugene, Oregon, and I never did one of those. <laughs> but that, that's the thing, though, Vaughn. I think everybody has one of these, and you don't know, right? You just don't oh, know yeah. when to take that plunge. Yeah. Now, of course... I think we do know now they're all getting really old. Oh, the Jaggerhead is 80th, 80th birthday. 80th birthday, yes. And then, you know, I, I've heard from people that have seen the Stones in the last couple of years. They're still pretty astonishing. Uh, bands that break up, however, and don't come back for one reason or another, and some of whom don't survive, you're, you're missing something. And uh, the yeah. chances are still there. Happily, the pandemic seems to have 
alerted every music artist still living in the world that time is running out, royalties are running out, and you better get out on the road and have that last farewell tour because you may not be here for the next one. So uh, it used to be a joke when artists would announce a farewell tour, but we are fortunate to be living in a time when there's an awful lot of artists out there making up for the fact that they missed three or four years of revenue and they're out touring. So there's a wealth of shows available right now. Well, that's true because also that's the way they make money now. Yeah, they, they have to get out too. there. You know, that's a good point. It, it, when I was uh, reviewing music and going to shows, uh, the tickets weren't that expensive because the shows were kind of seen as wetting your appetite for the album. So they were almost lost leaders. Uh, artists didn't try to make a huge amount of money on tour. They make some money on T-shirts and stuff like that. But the big revenue was selling records and later CDs. Nowadays, the economics are reversed. The reason you're making, you're paying so much for tickets is because that's the cash flow yes. for the artist. And people are clearly willing to pay, right? I yep. mean, they will shell out any amount of money to go and see like Taylor Swift in Seattle last weekend. Yeah, no, that's that's true, and uh, I mean, I, I <laughs> you've presumably been following the grumbling about Bruce Springsteen. So Springsteen kind of frames himself as a working class kind of performer, and he does have legitimate roots and everything. He's charging a staggering amount for tickets to this year's tour, and he said, "Well, you know, people are making money off reselling oh, our exactly. tickets." So yeah, and by the way, there's one thing I did discover: is YouTube is astonishing these days. People are posting the show on YouTube within a few days of the performance. So, okay, you know, I don't understand. I, do my, Vaughn, uh, I don't understand that because when I did go well, to that Eagles concert and they yeah. wanted no cameras, no whatever, but the yeah. guy in front of us recorded the whole thing, and I thought he's not even enjoying the show. All he's well, doing is recording the show. you know, one the of show. the great things about the Grateful Dead is they used to have a taper section in their shows. They that would allow great. you to plug straight into the soundboard and tape the show, and that was because the Dead gave a different show every time they performed, and they didn't care. They allowed their fans to tape them in high-quality feeds off the soundboard. That's amazing. Well, I know we've talked all this stuff about music yeah, yeah, and concerts. Yeah. we got to talk some politics stuff. It's and yet, Friday. We couldn't completely go without that on a Friday. We're talking with Vaughn Palmer now about BC Ferries. We've been talking about it all week. And Vaughn, just when you think you might be able to stop, you can't. Yeah, you know, I was thinking you've taken a couple of hard runs at BC Ferries this week, and I do have a long relationship with the ferry service. My dad worked for BC Ferries. That's why we moved to British Columbia 40 years ago, or longer than that, actually, more than 50 years ago now. And uh, and I worked on ferries myself, So, and I lived on the island, so you are you have a relationship with them. And I have taken a couple of runs at them, and then... <laughs> And then I see yesterday, first of all, that ferries, the website is still posting like a nine multi-sailing weight, and, and the website has this note at the top telling you don't necessarily believe this that may not be true and i'm going who does that with their website like like uh, attention customers this may be a tissue of lies which it was again and then i catch what happened with global tv um Kristen Robinson, last evening, she's doing a story on the controversy over the drop trailer business on ferries. 
And yeah, it's hard to get anybody in fairies to talk about anything, so she has an inspiration. She phones up Joy McPhail, chair of the board of BC Fairies, right? Uh, front and center when they have good news to announce. And McPhail hangs up on her. Oof. Like, <laughs> this is, you know, they, they can try to pretend fairies is a private corporation, but there's no question who pays the bills and controls it. And McPhail, as board chair, the pay there is uh, in the range of $150,000 a year. And I'm going, you're not even going to take a question from the news media because the BC Ferries comms phones up Kristen and says, um, nah, well, McPhail's not doing interviews. So I, I just go like, man, oh, man, for a company that is um, front and center, Front and center, first of all, to the NDP in BC. Virtually every community on the coast and on Vancouver Island that is served by BC Ferries elects a new Democrat and has an NDP MLA and, in some cases, an NDP cabinet minister. But just try to get one of them to talk about the troubles on BC Ferries these days and don't be surprised if they won't return your call. Which is so ridiculous because what are they on? Vac- I'm sure there's people on vacation, but you would think a, a, to use a you know boat metaphor, they all should be all hands on deck right now, given all the problems that they're having. It's the peak of business for BC ferries, and when your business is in its busiest season, recovering tourism, central to the economy of the island. There should be some people, other than communications people who do try to do their job, there should be a CEO or a cabinet minister or a board chair or all three available to handle the news media, to go to the ferry terminals and do a stand-up and talk about what's going on. And that isn't happening. There's nobody there who I think central, highly placed feels Mm -hmm. that they need to account to the public, to their own voters in the case of a politician. You know, I was struck by the fact that Jill Bennett yesterday had the former NDP MLA, now mayor of Nanaimo, Leonard Krogh on the air, and he was saying what you'd expect a New Democrat to say if they were telling the truth, which is, it's incredibly frustrating, it is difficult to get a decent explanation, and he doesn't understand why they haven't turned things around at ferries yet. Right, let's talk about that staff shortage aspect of this, because we spoke with the Canadian Ferry Association who said this is a, a recruitment's a problem right across the country because of maritime training regulations, but also the way they do things at BC Ferries is part of the problem. Yeah, so, you know, I talked on the radio this week about how ferries used to be seen as a great job when I was growing up in Nanaimo. A lot of people that I went to school with saw it that way, and ferries paid well, and the benefits were good. I did it as a summer job. I got an interesting note from somebody who said, you know, um, what you need to know is the problem with this image that ferries have. The pay is good, and they're negotiating an improvement in the pay, The benefits are good, but he said there's a huge problem in the ferry service with the number of casual workers. So this fellow said he got a job on the ferries, but he ended up being casual, and he never got enough shifts regularly to pay the bills and treat it like a full-time income, and he finally quit because he just didn't see any way to get to the level that's there on paper. And I must admit, when I heard him, uh, I went, I don't really know enough about this problem out there. 
but it sounds like a real one. I'm sure the ferry workers have some insights into it, but okay, it's a seasonal business, so a seasonal business needs casual workers, but is the ferry corporation really recognizing the degree to which yeah. its own staffing system is creating the problem but of if you're a casual worker, Sammy, and you're feeling sick, do you, sh- you don't show up for work, right? One of the big problems. But you said it, Vaughn. You yeah. said it, though, is that yeah. it, there's a, for a very long time, we, we assumed BC Ferries was a great job to have. It was a coveted job to have. And yeah. I think they treated it like that, that you, everybody wants to work here. Therefore, we have, we can pick and choose and we yeah. can keep you on call. And you're still going to do that because, you know, the reward is a job with BC Ferries. But that's changed now. And perhaps they just aren't dealing with the new reality. That, that's true. This fellow who sent the note to me, uh, I also heard a note yesterday from somebody who lives on Gabriola Island. And he said, you know, they made a big deal. They've given us two ferries now and they're new and they're in service. But he said, regular cancellations of the service between Nanaimo and Gabriola Island because somebody didn't show up for work. Transport Canada rules are rigid. The ship can't sail. And he says this happens all the time. Well, again, if you're going to promote employee loyalty, making sure those employees have full-time good-paying jobs with benefits might be a way to cultivate it. Exactly. Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us on this Friday morning to check in on all the stories that have been happening, well, some of them, in the United States this week, because there's always a very long list. But let's go to Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. I have to ask you about this case of this missing girl, this 14-year-old girl. She disappeared from Arizona, what was it, four years ago, three years ago, and now she turns up in Montana? Turns up in Montana, you know, 2,400-ish miles away or 1,000 miles away from uh, from. Glendale, Arizona. Uh, she walked into a police station on Sunday morning in uh, in a Montana town right near the Canadian border. Uh, said that she is, uh, you know, the person that ran away from home. She had originally left a note saying that she was sorry for running away and that she would be back. Uh, and there have been developments since Sunday in that on Wednesday night, uh, police surrounded a, a home in and around the police station uh, and took a man into custody uh, where neighbors say that a girl who looks like a picture that police had handed out was seen then coming out of the house again. And there are now questions here whether Stockholm Syndrome is playing a, a role into this. But at the end of the day, the mother has come out to say that there is just like an overwhelming sense of emotion in the fact that she now has found yeah. her daughter after all these years. And I know the police have been said, no, no, they're using the word victim here. They believe she is a victim. They believe she's a victim. Uh, there are also reports uh, that there may be um, a developmental challenge or, or a mental health issue as well. Uh, and they are not trying to portray uh, the girl here, at least in any kind of negative light. Uh, but they also say that this is not right. the end of the investigation. It is it is just beginning from where they're looking at it. Okay. I'm I- keep trying to read up on that one because I feel like there's still so many more questions and answers at this point on that. And I'm just glad to hear that she's okay. Uh, I also want to ask you this morning about how happy you are to be covering UFOs this week, because it feels to me like everybody is talking about this House Oversight Committee uh, testimony that happened. So, uh, look, I, I covered it. and, <laughs> on, and I, hear, What do you really think, Reggie? I, I listened to it and, you know, it, it, 
there are two different ways to look at this. Number one, um, it is a Republican-led committee, and at times, parts of this hearing started to move down that path of this is why we shouldn't trust the government. This is why we shouldn't have faith in you know the Biden administration because they're not being square with the people. And, and there was a risk that that could potentially turn into something else because that's what these committees often um, can find themselves doing. But then at the same time, you have people that are testifying saying that the government is holding non-human biologics and that they have pieces of, of alien spacecraft, but the witnesses then wouldn't go into any kind of testimony and they wouldn't go on the record, even though one of the witnesses is on the record on a U.S. network talking about all of these things. And it yeah. just raises questions here. What was the point of any of this? Because if there was an effort here for Republicans to try to blow the lid off some big government cover up, it 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 it, it just failed. Okay, so that's interesting then. So they wouldn't go officially on the record, but you're right. They have been everywhere talking about this. Yes, and, and look, there is there is a broader effort here in the United States uh, between NASA, between the Defense Department to open up and be more transparent about these kinds of sightings because they can pose risks to pilots or things in the air or national security. So there's a broader effort here to remove the stigma of talking about these kinds of things. But at the same time, you know, I talked to an astrophysicist that day who said, look, Occam's razor is here for a reason oftentimes the simplest explanations are um you know the easiest ones or the easiest ones are the ones to go after just because you see lights doesn't mean that it's aliens sometimes there are just other things in space that you're seeing okay <laughs> you must have had a great week covering this now another story that it does feel like in the last 24 hours everybody is talking about is reggie first i want you to have a listen to this cooperation and a string of uh, Yeah, that was awkward. That was Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had a moment of kind of freezing and silence there. And I have to ask, what happened? We don't know. He came out not long after uh, and said he was fine. Uh, and, and, you know, it is awkward. It's also concerning to see yes. somebody in that kind of position. Um, and, you know, nobody nobody kind of shouted to ask what was going on. They just let the moment play out. He came back. He's not talking about it. But it is raising a much larger question in Washington here uh, linked to the age of people who are in elected positions. Look, Mitch McConnell is 81 years old. He had clearly a medical moment there. Yesterday, Dianne Feinstein, 90 years old. Uh, a Democratic senator was asked to answer I or no for a defense appropriation oh, bill. This, yeah. And she started reading from prepared remarks and they had to tell her what to do. Here you have 80 and 90 year olds in serving positions in the Senate. You have 70 and 80 year olds running for presidency or sitting in the Oval Office right now. And it is that question at what age is too old to be in positions of power. And, and we're seeing the kind of effects of that play out in real time. Yeah, I mean, look at the two top front runners for the presidential race. You've got President Joe Biden, who is is 80, right? 80, 81? Yes, he'll, and would be well into his 80s at the end of a second term. Okay. And then you've got Donald Trump running for president who is almost 80. Who is almost 80 uh, and, and you know, is said to be or believes himself to be in better shape than Joe Biden. But at the end of the day, again, you have two men who are at an advanced age uh, who at, you know, the vice president is always said to be one breath away or one, you know, one failed heartbeat away from the presidency. Those are real concerns now as you look at two people vying for the Oval Office who are nearing uh, the upper ages of, of, you know, where people often try to stop working. 
It is interesting that there is an age limit, like a there's a young age limit. There's a certain age you have to be before you can run for president, but there's no upper age limit on this. Yeah, you can be you have to be 35, but there is no upper age limit. And there have been conversations sparked of do we need term limits for senators? Do we need term limits for uh, for people in the House? Uh, there's term limits, obviously, on the presidency, but there is no age limit. And I think that is going to become a much bigger conversation, especially as you start to see younger members of Congress get elected in. OK, boy. And since we talked about the presidential race, we should just weigh in on these indictments that happened this week for former President Donald Trump. What's that all about? So we're waiting on an indictment still in D.C. We thought it would happen yesterday. That didn't happen. The grand jury in D.C. meets again on Tuesday. Uh, and this is linked to election interference and what happened on January 6th. And then last night, a surprise announcement out of Florida where Jack Smith uh, added new charges to the indictment that was already levied, uh, a superseding indictment this was. Uh, and it alleges that uh, there was an effort to kind of tamper with or delete surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago directed by Donald Trump uh, to evade government officials and make it difficult for them or impossible for them to pick up and find the documents that they were trying to come and get. Another charge also laid against Trump for willfully holding on to national security material. And this is linked to, uh, we heard him on tape, talking about boasting about holding a piece of paper linked to a potential attack on Iran. The government now says they have the information, they have the paper. So he's been hit with another, um, you know, uh, classified document charge, uh, making it 32 in total. This is this is big, uh, especially with a trial that's now been set for next May. All right, Reggie, thank you for that. Happy Friday. You too. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, bringing us up to date on some of the stories happening in the United States this week. This is Mornings with Simi. I try to stay positive about most things. I'm nowhere close to what Scott Chance is when it comes to positivity, but social media is an area where I do have a hard time looking at the positives of it. But of course, he's doing that. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good, yeah, it does feel like that, right? Like, every time we talk about social media, people are really quick to dive in on how terrible it is. It's hard for me these days in particular to see what the positives are. I mean, it's particularly like the Elon Musk Mark Zuckerberg thing and all the Just political stuff we have going the, on. The politicization, the, the angry people. It's really hard to see the fact that, you know, we'd rather obsess about things online. I see so many people crossing the street, looking at their phone, yeah. not engaging people, walking their dogs, people walking their children in strollers and too busy looking at their phones. And I wonder what is the, what is good has come of this? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And all of that is true. And in so many ways, social media has like given safety to people who otherwise would wouldn't get involved in the conversation. They have the safety to like say all this bad stuff. But is there potentially an upside to social media? And I I think that there is, Simi. Um, I spoke with Shelly Craig. She is the Canadian Research Chair in Sexual and Gender Minority Youth. She's done a ton of research into this topic, specifically with some of our most vulnerable youth here in Canada. Have a listen to what she says. So both can in fact exist. There is a reason we are all on social, many of us are on social media, and there is a reason that adolescents are also on social media, and queer adolescents specifically, right? So I think that it's just important to take into consideration that there is sort of nuance. And you are right, the sort of what I, what I label, have labeled the fear rhetoric, right? Which is around social media, which is essentially that it's all harmful, particularly to adolescents. It's applied more to adolescents than any other population, which I think is interesting. But um, the fear rhetoric in many ways 
is really easy for us to understand and comprehend, right? And that's mm-hmm. a lot of where the research is. It's primarily on cyberbullying, and it's much easier to embrace. But I feel like it's, based on my research, it's an example of essentially what is like our homophobic and transphobic society because it invisibilizes um, the experiences. It really erases the experiences of LGBT youth. What I found as I was working specifically with LGBT youth, to us LGBTQ youth, of course, depending on where you are, there are different acronyms, as you know. And what I was seeing specifically was that um, they... LGBT youth were using it pretty extensively. So a lot of the kids that I was working with were using it extensively. And I started to understand social media for our queer young people was providing very different experiences and benefits than what we were seeing reflected in kind of this fear rhetoric around social media. So LGBT youth consistently feel safer, and this is still true, online than offline. LGBT youth have talked about social media being their home, their family. It's kept them alive. It's built their resilience. It's given them hope. Um, and it's so the benefits are quite astounding. And, and essentially what they are saying is that it's really been a place that they can, um, and you know, some of them even credit social media with, with the, their connections on social media, not social media itself. Sure. Their connections on social media as saving their lives. Let's talk about parenting. How do we integrate social media in a healthy way as parents? First, we want to recognize that it, it is challenging, right? It's particularly challenging to talk to young people about social media. It's almost like the conversation that you might have you know, with your adolescent young person about sex, right? It's really hard for parents to do. So I just want to recognize that. That is not easy. A couple of things often come to mind, but thinking critically, right? So not embracing this kind of fear rhetoric, but also like questioning. I think something that's important is questioning our assumptions about social media, right? Because we may have seen you know, a news article about it that's usually mapped onto this fear rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. Or something that is that makes us nervous because we want to protect our children, of course, right? But social media doesn't create, but really reflects what is happening in our society. It's what already exists, right? So it's really important to be able to, I think, talk to your child about social media use. Like you can talk about your own use and maybe share that with them, but starting to talk about that instead of like a lot of parents, understandably, take the phone away because it's the piece, it's the thing that seems most important to our young people. Right. But for particularly for our queer young people, I will say it it can be a critical connection, right? It could be life saving. So wow. we don't necessarily want to do that. Can we be curious and really talk to our child or a young person about? Okay, tell me what's interesting to you about this, you know, what is it that you're looking on at social media? Help me learn, right? I'll make jokes about being older, right? Totally, (laughs) yep. Show me what's what's interesting now. And it can actually strengthen the relationship because you understand your child a little bit more. But then they're more likely to kind of keep that line of communication open because you're not approaching it in this sort of dichotomous all or nothing way. You can say, hey, I'm worried. I hear all these things about social media. And just starting to have that conversation with them so that they feel like because you've laid the groundwork for them to talk to you about social media in a way that isn't going to hopefully 
um, mean that, you know, you're taking the phone away or, or whatever. Obviously, parents have to make important decisions, but so that they can come and discuss things with you. Right. So that yeah. I think is pretty important that 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 communication, I think, is key. And I recognize that it's hard, but it can also I've seen it strengthen parenting relationships. That's Shelley Craig. She's a professor at University of Toronto and the Canadian Research Chair in Sexual and Gender Minority Youth. And you know what I love about the way she says that, Simi? It, it, she's addressing it like my kids are going to be on social media. Right. So there's no point in trying to pretend that it's not going to happen. So let's try to find a way to make it as positive as we can. I agree. However, I also believe that this there's a younger generation that will there will be a backlash eventually. Hopefully. That there will be a generation that says, I am so tired of seeing every on their phone. I'm not going to do what my parents did. And so I, everything always comes full circle. I hope you're right, but then there'll just be something else. Something <laughs> probably even worse, right? <laughs> AI, mind reading, who knows? All right. All right. Thank, thank you for that, Scott. Yeah, you got that, it. That was great. This is Mornings with Simi. The latest news from BC Ferries is that if you're traveling to Salt Spring Island this weekend, you may encounter delays. They are anticipating an increase in traffic on that particular route. They say people should try carpooling or get ready for sailing weights. I mean, it's always something these days, isn't it? And whenever we do stories about problems with BC ferries, I automatically for sure hear from people who say, why are we the only ones having this problem? And they will tell me, you know, down in Washington state, the ferry system runs fine and everything is great. In fact, this week I had a whole bunch of people emailing me and telling me that which is why I thought, all right, we need to take a closer look at this, right? I got our next guest and I thought, is our ferry system running in Washington so well that we need to talk about it? Yes, we do. So Charles Prestrud is with us now, the director of the Coles Transportation Center in Washington State, and he's written about this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Now, we're obviously facing a lot of challenges up here, Charles, with our ferry system. What's it like in Washington State? Well, I wish I could tell you that things were just wonderful down here, but we're actually facing pretty much the same problems. And there have been significant service interruptions and long lines uh, down here in Puget Sound. Why? What's happening? Well, there are two fundamental problems. Uh, One is uh, they don't have enough crew to man the ferries. And this is partly due to COVID, but it's also due to just having a large number of very senior employees who were approaching retirement even before COVID hit. And then the governor issued an executive order mandating vaccinations for all ferry system employees. And many of them didn't want to do that. So 132 ferry system employees uh, were either dismissed or forced into early retirement. And since they barely had enough uh, crew to start with, it meant that they no longer had enough crew to man the boats, and it's hard to hire people with the necessary skills. So here we are a year and a half later, and uh, we're still significantly short of the necessary crew members. The other problem is that uh, the ferry system doesn't have as many ferry boats as they need. Um, So when one breaks down, sometimes there's no backup boat to bring into service. Okay, these are exactly like the problems that we are having here. Yeah, uh, sounds like it. Yeah, okay, so tell me about the ferry, the boat problem here. Is it it that they haven't invested in the infrastructure for the boats? Have they ordered them? What's going on there? Well, it's a complex story, but um, again, um, politics has something to do with it. Uh, The average 
age of a ferry in the Washington State fleet is about 30 years or a little bit over now, which is old by industry standards. And uh, the ferry system did purchase uh, four or five new ferries uh, a few years ago. Those were conventional diesel-powered ferries. But then the governor issued an executive order directing the ferry system to transition as soon as possible to zero-emission uh, zero emission fleet. And so the ferry system said, hmm, okay, well, uh, we'll have to buy electrically powered ferries. And it turns out that that's a whole lot more complicated and difficult and expensive uh, than they anticipated. And their initial attempt to design and, and purchase these uh, electrically powered ferries uh, failed. And so the state is going to have to issue a new request for proposals and it'll be two or three years at least before we get any new boats, which makes it very difficult for the ferry system to keep the existing old clunkers running. And so up here, you know, when, when we have problems with our ferry system, Charles, there's a lot of pressure put on the government to do something about it. What's it like down in Washington state? Is there pressure on the state government to do something? There is. And uh, the legislators who represent uh, the districts around Puget Sound are getting a lot of, uh, shall we say, input uh, from their constituents who are unhappy uh, with the poor service. But half of Washington state, you know, the half that's east of the Cascade Mountains, they're a lot less concerned about the ferry system. So uh, this is a political problem, and it's not clear yet uh, how it's going to be resolved. Okay, that's an interesting point. I think for us, it's probably we get louder because our capital is over on Vancouver Island, right? So you <laughs> yeah. have to get to and from, but that's not the case in Washington. So for your case, then politicians have to balance the rest of the kind of mainland state versus the areas that need the ferries. That's right. I mean, it's it's always a, a tough uh, uh, arm wrestling contest uh, when the transportation budget is being prepared uh, there are needs all over the state, and it certainly didn't help the the case that the ferry system was trying to make when uh, the bids for the electric ferries came in so far over budget. Uh, I think that caused some legislators to to choke on that and say, you know, we need to we need to find an, a cheaper way to get ferries built. The, the ferry system in Washington State has always been more utilitarian, hasn't it? It's kind of is it's it's bare bones. Yes, it is, and in fact. Uh, it's kind of funny uh, when people from Washington State go up to British Columbia and take the ferries. They come back here and they tell us, how come we can't have a ferry system that operates like the one on British Columbia where they have fancy ferries, you know, with nice <laughs> amenities and, and, and they're faster and they're bigger. And, and here in Washington State, you know, we have these smaller ones. They seem to be older, you know. That is so fancy. funny. That's so funny because yeah. we get the opposite, right? We get people saying, why can't we just have the basic system that runs well and seems to go on time like they have in Washington State? Yeah. It's always, well, the, w- the grass is always greener somewhere else, I guess. Yes, it is. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, in the past, there has been a ferry route that connected uh, Anacortes, Washington, <clears throat> with Sydney, British Columbia. Uh, but that route was taken out of service in uh, 2020 when the COVID pandemic began and service has not been restored and probably won't be restored until 2030, which is kind of a shame because it was nice having that direct connection. 
Yeah, and so what is the reason for that not being restored? Well, it's uh, a combination of both not having enough crew and international sailings like that require ferries to have uh, an international certification. It's the safety of life at sea requirements for additional uh, onboard uh, safety and and, uh, life-saving equipment. And the ferry system only had two ferries that met that certification, and one of them got so rusty that it had to be taken out of service. So now we were down to just one uh, ferry, and it's often used on other routes. So uh, it's a combination of both not having enough crew and not having enough boats that are certified for that international service. And so what are they doing about the training and the retention, the staff issue? Well, they're working hard, and I have to give the ferry system some credit on this. Uh, They could have started a little bit sooner, but they have been hustling to uh, uh, recruit and train more staff. Uh, It used to be that it was the obligation of the employee to get the necessary certifications, which can take a long time and cost some money. Now the ferry system helps pay for that. Uh, The ferry system is also working with the local Maritime Training Academy, to uh, encourage people to go into these fields and uh, to recruit from them. so And now they recruit year-round. It used to be they just do it in spring because they needed more crew during uh, the summer months. But there are a lot of union regulations, and so it's, it's still a slow process. Well, this was really illuminating, Charles, so we appreciate your time on that this morning. Thank you very much, and good luck with your ferry system up there. Yeah, and good luck for, with yours, too. That's Charles Prestrud, who's the director of the Coles Transportation Center in Washington State, and has been writing about the problems that the Washington State ferry system has been having. And boy, do they ever sound similar. Aging ships that are breaking down that they can't get repaired, lineups, waits at the ferry terminals, uh, can't get enough staff. Everything that we've got, they also have down there, too. Although, I, you know, the website might be a different situation, but... Other, everything else completely the same. Uh, clearly, these are issues that many ferry systems are grappling with. But, you know, with the money that we are throwing at it, you think that we could get ours back up and running faster. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with the Vancouver Whitecaps, find out how they are doing for League's Cup play. So Coach Vanny Sartini is with us now. Good morning, Coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. You're off to uh, Los Angeles. Yep, yep, yep. We're playing there on Sunday. We'll actually travel today, this afternoon after practice. We'll practice there tomorrow and play Sunday afternoon. So does that leave you lots of time to go have some pizza? Yeah, probably, yes. I actually have a good good spot uh, close to the hotel where we go. So probably, I think, uh, uh, as usual, uh, you know, we're not superstitious, but we try to do the thing when we the same thing when we want the same routine. Let's say, like last time, uh, I went to have a pizza for lunch before the before the game, so I'll probably do the same. Okay, so what kind of pizza though? Like, do you have to order the same pizza too? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I'll probably do. I, 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 you know, I. It's it's summertime. You don't want to get too too heavy. So uh, classic margarita is okay. Okay, so I have to ask then. So you go to all these pizza places when you travel with the team. How do you keep track of what? Like, what if you have a really great one? Do you make a note of that? Do you be like, okay, next time I'm in Philadelphia, I have to make sure I go back here and have this pizza? Well, actually, yes, and <laughs> it's, uh, wow. it's, uh, it's it's something that. Uh, if I discover with uh, with I mean with the team, then let's say 
I'm I'm in the off season and I'm traveling to I don't know uh, uh, we with my wife to San Francisco for example and we go to I'm going to take the pizza where where I went when the time that I was with the team if it was really yeah. good so that's the thing so you make you know, it uh, everything uh, everything every journey is some something that you need to use to for your for your personal growth and so uh, discovering a new pizza place is my personal growth. I agree <laughs> I agree that is personal growth so if you're discovering a new pizza place what do you order to find out if this is a good pizza place do you just go you know what I'm going with that classic margarita because that'll tell me how good this place is that's actually I would say that the, the a good strategy because the less uh, the, the the simplest is the the pizza if, if it's the it's the if the if the quality is good, you can tell it immediately. It's the quality of the, it can tell you the quality of the of the crust, uh, the quality of the of the tomato sauce, and also if they overput the cheese, that that's a classic mistake because if they put too much thing, it means that even if you order something with more toppings, at the end is not the pizza, it's just toppings and. and like, what are they do? trying to cover up, right? By putting yeah, so much yeah, cheese on there. Okay. Yeah. I have to ask you about soccer too, of course, before we let you go. Yeah, 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 so what know, do we know about that. the Galaxy? Is this a challenging team to play? Well, mm, yes, because they're, uh, in, in Los Angeles, they're a good team. Uh, away, they didn't have a good record. And the fact that we played actually against them a few weeks ago and, and we beat them here at BC Place. And we beat them pretty badly, I would say, for them. Uh, we play, We have played them, so... I think they also have this extra motivation to try to revenge that uh, that loss. But if we do uh, our performance and if we, if we play, I would say, the way that we are playing lately, we have uh, chances because we need to make results uh, uh, in order to, to qualify to the next round of the League's Cup. And we want to do that. So knock wood that it goes well. Fingers crossed we'll be watching. Good luck. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Where is the most impressive tree in Canada? Apparently, there is something such as an impressive tree in Canada. The Ancient Forest Alliance has actually been tracking this, and there's something called the BC Big Tree Registry, and they've identified this tree. It is the sixth largest red cedar in Canada. Yes, it is in BC. We're going to find out more about it right now from TJ Watt, a photographer and campaigner for the Ancient Forest Alliance. TJ, thanks for being here. Yeah, you're most welcome. Have I'm you seen this here. tree? Yes, actually. I'm the one who uh, first came across it last summer. In fact, while out exploring as part of my work as a National Geographic and Royal Canadian Geographical Society explorer uh, out in Clackwood Sound near Sfino. Okay, so what happened when you first saw it, TJ? Did you immediately go, whoa, this tree? Yes, more than that. I mean, I've been doing this uh, work exploring and documenting BC's old growth forest for nearly two decades now, and no tree has stopped me in my tracks and been more mind-blowing than this one. Why? This is a, uh, well, this is an ancient red cedar that is, first off, about more than 17 feet or over five meters wide at its base. But unlike most other trees, it actually gets wider as it goes up. It's like the inverse of a regular tree. Um, and we figure that it has either the largest or near largest timber volume for the first 50 feet of the tree than any tree in all of Canada. Um, and that's really the part of the tree that you or I experience when you're standing below it. In fact, truthfully, I thought it was a rock wall when I was first walking up instead of a living, tr- uh, breathing tree. Okay. And so where is it? 
Uh, this is on a remote location on Flores Island in the territory of the Ahouset First Nation. Uh, the tree is currently unprotected, but thankfully the incredible land use vision of the Ahouset Nation uh, calls for the protection of 80% of their territory, including the ancient forests where this tree is found. And this is just, uh, just up the coast from Tofino on Vancouver Island. Okay, and so they've known about this tree for some time. They highlighted it, right? Um, it was myself in recent times who at least brought it to the attention of some of the folks there. But of course, the Ahouset Nation has been uh, inhabiting this area since time immemorial. There are culturally modified trees in the region. So by no means would I have been the first person to ever have seen this tree. Um, we're just saying that we were uh, the first to identify it for the significance and it being the most impressive in the, in the country. Okay. And now you talked about one of the, the, the shape of it, which makes it impressive. What else makes it impressive? Well, it has this sprawling fortress-like canopy that is uh, home up there to diverse plants and other trees. There's these suspended soil mats that are undoubtedly home to new species. And it just, it has such an imposing presence. Again, I can't overstate that enough. I've been to uh, the, to see the most, um, the biggest trees across Canada, including most of the top 10 cedars and even the number one on earth, the Chiwat giant, and none of them feel quite as imposing and as beautiful as this. It's likely well over a thousand years given its size. Wow, a thousand years. Like how many trees mm -hmm. like that could there be? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, today, unfortunately, there's only a tiny, tiny fraction of the most productive and grand old growth forest left in BC due to over a century of industrial logging. And uh, trees like this are few and far between, and uh, we're always out there looking for them, but finding one of this size might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So what's going to happen now that we know about this tree? And also, how important is it to flag this tree and say this is there? I think it's really important. I think it reminds people that BC is home to some of the most spectacular old-growth rainforest ecosystems on planet Earth. They're really second in grandeur only to the redwoods of California. And now it's up to the BC government to support the protection of old growth across BC through Indigenous-led um, old growth protection initiatives, such as the incredible land use vision of the, of the uh, House at First Nation. Um, and they can do that through their new conservation financing fund and help protect the remaining monumental old growth stands, especially those identified most at risk by their own science panel. I also found it interesting that we don't, in Canada, we don't have a, like a national index for ranking trees. Now, the closest would be the BC Big Tree Registry, which I'm a part of as well. Um, and anyone in British Columbia can submit a tree. There's instructions online on how you accurately measure them. Um, and it's a fun way to get out into the world and explore and see what you might find. And so how do they do it in the United States? Um, in the U.S., uh, they devise a system. It's called the it's an AFA point system. And, and you basically you measure the diameter of the tree at breast height. You measure the height of the tree, and then you get the average crown spread. You plug those numbers into a formula, and it gives you an overall points uh, number for a tree. That's why this one currently ranks as number six on the BC registry. However, that formula is effective for trees that are growing in a typical cone shape, but because this one gets so much wider as it goes up, we're missing the ability to calculate the true volume of this tree. And if we're able to do that, it would likely rank right up even close to the very top of the list. Oh, that's kind of amazing then. So, and I understand mm -hmm. they're, they're going to keep the location kind of a little bit under wraps. Why is that? Well, again, uh, through <laughs> places like this can become really popular and they're sensitive areas. So we don't want the forest to get trampled or overused. Um, thankfully, it's in a very re remote and difficult to access location to begin with. But I think that um, people can still go out and enjoy
these spectacular ecosystems in in around Tofino uh, with the Ahousat Nation actually through their new Ahus Adventure Tour company. So we encourage folks to do that and you'll still see amazing wildlife and other spectacular giant trees. So how many moments have you had like that in your career, TJ, where you come across something like this and you're just blown away? I mean, I've had many. Thankfully, my job provides me the ability to explore and document some of the most grand ecosystems on Earth here in BC. But this one really takes the cake. This is what every big hunter dreams, big tree hunter dreams of. You know, I was walking through the forest, and truthfully, from a distance, I didn't even believe my eyes. It took up too much of the field of view. You have to see the pictures on our website to to fully understand um, at ancientforestalliance.org. But it, it's just. Again, if I don't find a tree bigger than this one for the rest of my life, I'll be content knowing that this is out there. It's that spectacular. Can you capture it? Like when you say taking pictures of it, does it still capture the majesty of what you saw? I think so. I think, again, people are just blown away by the photos that we've shared so far. Truthfully, it's it's hard to actually even just fit it into the frame of the camera itself. I had to keep stepping further and further and further backwards just to to get it all in. Um, Of course, being there is a whole other Uh, level of experience and grandeur but that's my job is to try to capture and convey the the incredible grandeur of bc's old growth forest and share those images with people around the world okay first off you sound like you have an amazing job how does one get into doing this and where are you off to (laughs) next (laughs) good question i mean i'd say for someone who loves big trees I have both the best and worst job in the world. When I'm in the forest documenting areas like this, there could be nothing better. But I'm also out um, photographing the logging of old growth forests and these massive stumps that can be, again, four, even five meters wide. Still today in 2023 being cut down uh, under the, the watch of the B.C. government. And I just I guess I lucked out early on. I combined my passion and interest for photography with conservation and helped co-found Ancient Forest Alliance 13 years ago. And today I'm dedicating my life to uh, preserving these endangered ecosystems. So I just went to the website as well, ancientforestalliance.org, where you can click Mm -hmm. on like photos and and you see it right there. So I'm looking Mm -hmm. at the picture of this tree. Um, It it doesn't even look real, actually, TJ. It looks like something from like Avatar or something like that. It really does. It's like it's in a league of its own. It's almost from another planet. It's like this living fortress. It's uh, again, you got to see it to believe it. And you can check it out through our social media channels, etc. How many more trees do you think there are like this out there? Gosh, it's hard to know. I hope there's more. Again, we're always looking for something even bigger and better. But the landscapes of British Columbia are quite rugged and, and dense, of course, when you're climbing over these massive fallen logs and through the bushes, uh, a human just on your two tiny feet can only cover so much ground in a lifetime. But um, these forests would have once covered vast areas, you know, even just downtown Vancouver was thought to have once had the tallest trees ever on earth, over 400 feet tall, these massive Douglas firs. But uh, today it's just filled with skyscrapers and concrete and it's hard to picture what would have once stood there. So today, again, we're on the hunt, but in the last fragments of these grand ecosystems that we're working so hard to protect. Amazing. TJ, thank you so much. You bet.
Have a good day. That's TJ Watt, a photographer and campaigner for the Ancient Forest Alliance. They have recently, they posted pictures about what they call Canada's most impressive tree. It's ranked as the sixth largest tree in the country, according to the BC Big Tree Registry. You can go onto their website, ancientforestalliance.org, and take a look at it yourself. It's unique in the way it is structured. It's kind of inverted. It's not, it, it actually gets bigger as it goes higher. And when you see the pictures, you go, man, this tree is amazing. It is huge. It is 46 meters tall, five meters wide at its base. It is absolutely beautiful to look at. And I can see why they kind of want to protect where the location is right now, because I know a lot of a lot of people would probably love to go out there and yeah, take a picture of it, take a picture of themselves in front of it. Uh, but it is beautiful and it's been located something like a thousand year old tree over in Clackwatt Sound. Just a phenomenal.